Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hey, Hannah. Um, and my sobriety date is September 21st, 2010. And I have a sponsor and I sponsor. And I started drinking on the regular um, around age 14. I was uh, kind of in and out of the house, sort of half-assed teenage runaway. <laughs> I would be gone for a week at a time and off drinking. I lived in a really rural area in my teens, so I would be in the middle of the woods and I would hitchhike into the nearest town and just, you know, time went on there. And um, after a week or so, my mom would call the highway patrol and send them out looking for me. Um, and I would be found and then I'd come home, things would settle down, and um, then I would get in a fight with my dad and I would either get thrown out or I would run away. And so this is the pattern um, of my teenage years. And I was in a lot of turmoil, and alcohol just made me feel like everything was okay. It made me forget my problems. Um, And I hung out with people who drank like I did. Um, You know, like I would go to a party with other teenagers, and there would be people having a beer or, like, this will date me, but Zima, you know. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and then I would find the other room where we were drinking, like, straight Jack Daniels and, like, sitting around listening to Tom Waits and feeling very, like, we were already crusty old drunks. Um, And, uh, you know... Drugs are part of my story. Since I started young, it was a lot easier to get drugs than alcohol regularly. Um, But I would still find ways. I'd stand in front of the Safeway in Fort Bragg and um, beg for change in my own hometown. (laughs) Shameless. (laughs) Beg for change until I had enough and then find somebody to buy for us um, to, you know, we'd give them some alcohol too. Um, and we tried to come up with creative ways to get change. I remember uh, I had a friend who would put his mohawk up into spikes and, like, break a balloon <laughs> for a doll. <laughs> Skateboard tricks, whatever, you know. Um, but the good times did not last. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I quickly, you know, found out it was pretty uncomfortable sleeping outside um, and so I found this house where I thought it would be a good place to stay and sleep at least on a floor. But little did I know these kids were sneaking out to the local veterinary clinic and stealing ketamine. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> the local police thought I was part of this problem. And so I quickly found my, oh, and the other thing, this is in Mendocino County, there was like a grow ripoff drama happening around this house too so I had like one group of people who were after after the grow ripoff folks and then I had the police who were looking after the doggy dog thieves and it was just like it was just a bad scene and I was like I'm just trying to stay drunk and dry from the rain you know um so anyway I ended up at a Denny's at three in the morning uh with a couple of home bum friends one of whom thought 
his brother was in the Beastie Boys and would always talk about that. It's always a good, good topic of conversation. And um, this man walks in and looks at me. I, I had recognized him from parties and stuff. And he's like, do you want to be here? And I was like, no, no, I don't. Um, so I left Denny's with him. Six months later, he proposed. <laughs> I, was, I was 18. And um, I was off the street. You know, that was, that was a pretty good solution at the time. Um, and he was also getting clean, which was convenient, you know, but that did not include alcohol. It was just from drugs. We thought we were doing really well. We would have like a case of vodka in our room. Um, and it was, it was just madness. I, I remember parties like New Year's Eve party, people came over and for some reason everybody brought a gun and the, our kitchen table was covered in firearms and that was just like, oh, that was a good time, you know? Um, you know, uh, I, I ran across somebody like years later who was like, I want to go to the craziest party and I was like, that was my house. I remember that, yeah. Um, Anyway, you know, I was I was married for a while. Uh, we tried to to clean things up a little bit with the drinking. Um, got really into doing martial arts, which was good for us. It was like there was like a spiritual element, and I couldn't get that drunk and then go train. So it was kind of like kept things under control. And then my appendix blew up, and I got pain pills, and I had like I had no program. And so my ex-husband came home and saw me with a, a fist of gas. See that? Um, and my Valium. And <laughs> he was like, I'm not, I'm just not doing this. And I was like, come on, we can go to counseling and <laughs> couples counseling. Um, and he didn't stick around long for that. And then um, shortly after that, I got served some papers and I was, I was divorced. And so, um, I was living in a house with a bunch of girls and um, around that time I got into activism and I thought that that was going to be my solution because I always wanted to be a good person, you know, I always wanted to make a difference. I always wanted to promote equality and justice in the world. Like I had these grand ideas, but I couldn't take care of myself. Um, but I found some people in the, the activist scene who weren't drinking. So I hung out with them. I was like, I think I might be an alcoholic. And I think one of them had maybe been to some AA because he was like, well, I can't tell you if you are or not. But, you know, why don't you try to stop and see what happens, you know? And so I kind of went into this weird activist workaholic mode where I was going to fight the system. And um, every once in a while, the pressure would get to me and I'd start to head to the bar. And then I'd call back to this, like weird activist commune house where we all lived and worked together and played in a band together and did everything together. Um, and they would say to me, just come back. We'll, we'll smoke some weed. You don't need to go to the bar. And so in that way I came draw, you know, stayed kind of California sober or whatever. Um, and then, then what happened? Then they weren't, they weren't hardcore enough for me. I felt like they sold out. So <laughs> that was the last straw. And I went to the bar by myself and drank at them. And, um, I was, <laughs> I was in my late twenties and it was Halloween. I dressed up as Joan Jett. 
I met some train hopper kid coming through town, and I was like, I'm going to go hop trains with you. And I just, like, stayed in my Halloween costume. (laughs) (laughs) That that was just my clothes. (laughs) And, um, yeah, things got really weird really fast. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I have, like, I have vague flashes of memory, like, being in a car, drinking, like, peel liquor out of a ketchup squeeze bottle, or, you know, like weird hitchhiking times um and and then I ended up back in Oakland I I was born here in the bay um and I just kept messing up I just kept running into people who didn't want to talk to me I was trying to be part of the activist scene here and people were like we don't really want you to because you're like more of a burden (laughs) you're more of a liability at this point um And then I ran into somebody who I had screwed over and he was like, you know, you seem like you want to be a good person. Why why are you acting this way? And for some reason, that was what got me. I was like, because I'm an alcoholic. It was just like that kindness of like, I see you. I see what you're trying to be um, just got to me. And I, I went to a meeting. I heard what I felt like was my story only much more progressed and it scared the shit out of me. And I just, I just hung on. And, um, I had a lot of like chronic pain at the time. Like my hands were going numb. My liver was enlarged. Go figure. Uh, but so basically I lost my job because after I stopped drinking, that was my pain management. I couldn't use my hands. And so I just had all this time to go to meetings So I went to multiple meetings a day. I had a hardcore sponsor who was like, you need to get three commitments. Um, And she was super, she was super tough with me and I needed that. Um, What's going on today? Um, My life is super different. I, um, I wrote and produced a play over the last summer, which is, you know, like coming back around to something that I, I always wanted to do. Um, and my challenge, my challenge today, um, and this is like, this is what I don't want to say, but I've taught, like, that's what you need to say, to be honest, is like being my full self, like shining as much as I possibly can and not, not hiding out in the rooms because the rooms have been a really safe and comforting place for me. Um, but right now I'm just working on a second play. And I've, I've sent it out to some people, but it scares the hell out of me because when I do that creative stuff that like makes my heart feel good, I go so hard. <laughs> like I just wear myself out. I don't have any um, pacing. So that's, that's what I'm struggling with uh, right now, which is like super high class. <laughs> awesome problem to have. Um, so I'm looking forward to hear what Joe has to say. <laughs> Thanks for letting me share. Thanks. Sure. <laughs> All right. Get mic'd in here. Ooh, yeah. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. My main, my name is Joe. And uh, my first sponsor told me to say that first so I could remind myself and everybody else in the room that that's what we're here for. Um, I have a sponsor. He's in the room. 
he has a sponsor and I sponsor other guys. And uh, that's how I really think this thing works. You know, my sobriety works through the act of service and being a service and not telling AA no. Um, my sobriety date is April 20th, 2005. And uh, by the grace of God, I have a little over 11 years. And that's not because I don't get in my own way. <laughs> um, so let me tell you a little bit about what it was like. Uh, I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, my dad's been sober since before I was born. He got sober 11, 19, 1979. And uh, my mom got sober when I was five. So I grew up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been watching Alcoholics my entire life. And uh, so when I was... When I was experimenting with things that made me feel like I wasn't myself, I decided I didn't want to be an alcoholic, so I immediately set out to be a drug addict. <laughs> and uh, so there's a lot of drugs in my story, but I really don't think there's a difference. Um, I, I've never met an alcoholic that can do cocaine casually on the weekends, and I've never met any cokeheads that could drink better than me. So, you know, I really think it's the same thing. Um, with that being said, I started really early, and I remember my first drink, my first cigarette, my first sexual experience really vividly. Uh, it was fourth grade. I was at, uh, I had my girlfriend. Her name was Carolyn. It was my first girlfriend ever, and we finished a 12-pack of Coors Light, smoked a half a carton of Salem Menthol Lights, and all I remember is vomiting. <laughs> really, it was almost instant blackout, and I threw up the entire time. The other thing I remember was the most visceral of that whole experience was the guilt. Growing up in Alcoholics Anonymous, I never enjoyed what I did. I never had that aspect of like feeling like it all went away. My drinking was immediately guilt-ridden, and, and I felt like I was doing something horrible. So I went home and I told on myself, and I was grounded for the next like two months. <laughs> and I didn't drink again for a while. I didn't drink again until sixth grade. And, uh, <laughs> hey, you know, I was an early bloomer. Um, but I found pot in sixth grade. We had moved to Arizona and, uh, and we, we lived half on an Indian reservation in this little town called Clarkdale, uh, Arizona. And it was Clarkdale and Jerome. The two little towns had one elementary school and all the res kids went to the same elementary school. And I was already bad at making friends. My dad's kind of nomadic. We moved every three years. So I immediately set forth to find the easiest people to get along with. And it was this native Navajo guy named Sonny. And he was the biggest kid in the class. And he was super quiet. And nobody else would talk to him because of his size. He was a six-foot-tall fifth grader. <laughs> <laughs> and both of his parents were over seven feet tall. So it was like he was very intimidating but didn't have any friends. I was like, all right. And Sonny's sister taught Sonny and I how to smoke pot. And uh, so that's what I did. I hung out with Sonny and I smoked pot and I hung out on the res. And then his dad taught us how to drink. And uh, and that's it just continued like that. So my dad explains my drinking. is like getting on at the top floor. And instead of getting off and checking every floor out, I hit the button straight to hell. Uh, by seventh grade, I was already smoking crystal meth. And, uh, my, uh, my buddy Brian, his dad made it in the basement of their mortuary. You know, so we would still, we stole speed from, from the mortician <laughs> and we were already selling pot and, uh, selling speed and doing tons of it. And I was getting ready to like get expelled from seventh grade. So my parents knew that they had to get me out of there. So we moved again and, uh, we moved to Mexico 
So now I was the only white kid in a Mexican school, which was great for two things. I speak Spanish fluently and I know how to hold my own in a fight. (laughs) Um, But I also learned how to drink really well there because I couldn't find any drugs. You know, I didn't know the language. I was too, I was too afraid. And uh, the only coping mechanisms I had was drinking. And you could drink in Mexico if you could reach the bar. So that's what I did. We would go to school. Uh, this is seventh and eighth grade. And I went to school from 7 a.m. to noon. And then the rest of the day you had to yourself. It was a private Mexican school. So we would get, we would leave at noon. Me and my buddy Robin would go to the taqueria that would give us tequila and Fanta. And we would drink until we couldn't see and then go surf the rest of the day. And like surfing would kind of balance us out to where we could go home to our parents and we weren't stumbling drunk. It was perfect. And we did that every day. I did that every day for the two years I lived there. You know, so by 12, I was a daily drunk. Um, we moved to Oregon and I found speed all over again. Central Oregon is a great mecca for crystal meth and I could drink with <laughs> impunity. And, uh, so high school was really a lot of fun for me. You know, I, I, I uh, barely showed up to any classes and, uh, I was six feet tall. I weighed a hundred pounds. I thought I was Superman and I was dying. Um, so by 17, my dad decided they needed to intervene. Um, I'd already moved out of the house. Uh, my dad and I had gotten in a fist fight over uh, breakfast. And because that's what drug addicts do. You know? <laughs> we find violent solutions to the fact that I didn't want eggs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's the kind of person I was. Um, you know, so I had moved out of the house at 16 and I was living in this single wide trailer that you could push on the walls and see the ground outside. We were paying our rent and speed and, uh, and, and it was just like, it was a dismal place. I had two roommates. One had just gotten out of Eastern Oregon State Penn and uh, the other was getting ready to go back. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we could, our rent was $330 a month and we could barely pay it between three of us. And, uh, you know, we had one working car. We were getting food boxes from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that was on Thursdays. So whatever we ate for the week came in that box from the church on Thursdays, which when you're a tweaker is really surprising how long that can stretch. (laughs) You know, and uh, we had like 14 kittens, because for some reason tweakers like to collect cats. (laughs) And... uh, my dad had these monthly dinners. So my dad, you know, like having a lot of time in Alcoholics Anonymous, he feeds all the people he sponsors and he's done it my entire life. And he would have these monthly dinners and I would show up for the monthly dinners and collect from newcomers that owed me money (laughs) because guys that he was sponsoring were hitting bottom in my trailer. And that's fucked up. (laughs) You know, that was the picture of what his son looked like is that guys were telling stories of their bottom in his son's trip. And uh, so they needed to do something. And he sponsored one of the corporals in this little town, Redmond, Oregon. And so Corporal Ludwig had told them they were getting ready to raid my trailer. You know, because it was a small town. Everybody knew what we were doing. And they were getting ready to raid our trailer. So he got me out of there minutes before they raided my trailer and sent me to a wonderful mental institution in northern Montana. And which was probably really good for me because I had been on an acid bender for about six months. And, uh, 
Yeah, because um, <laughs> you can really drink with impunity on LSD. Like it never, there's no off switch. And when I figured that out, I didn't ever want it to go away. That was like the perfect solution for me was as much acid as I could eat without blacking out and as much liquor as I could drink. And it got to a point where somebody that was partying with me, and I was 17 years old, somebody asked me what it was like to be me. And I couldn't answer that question in English. <laughs> um, you know, so I wake up. You know, a, a really good time to pull somebody out of, out of a tweaker house is about four in the morning because everybody's either passed out or really into investigating the inside of a radio. <laughs> and <laughs> so there's about 12 people crashing all over my house. One person is staring at the television with no signal on it because we didn't have cable and it's just a blue screen, which now occurs to me why it annoys me at the shop when they leave the monitor on for the computer. <laughs> um, uh, and so that's what my dad and my brother decided they were going to ask me if I wanted to go fishing with them. And I was like, yeah, let's go fishing. That sounds like a good idea. So they picked me up at four o'clock in the morning and I crawled into the back seat of the car, threw my leather jacket over my head and woke up four states away in Montana in what I thought was the bait and tackle shop. <laughs> <laughs> Having a conversation with myself. Um, with staff members of this institution around me, like terrified because I was six foot four, jaundice, and under a hundred pounds, talking to myself, and uh, they hadn't seen anybody in my condition because this was an institution for like wayward rich kids. It was a really expensive place. It was an institution for suicidal rich kids. They didn't have any drug addicts there. They didn't know how to deal with my withdrawals, so they put me in solitary confinement because um, I was having violent withdrawals. And uh, so I spent a year there, and about the, the first six weeks, I thought I had died. I was really convinced, because it was August, and there was snow everywhere. Montana, northern Montana, doesn't have a lot of summer. And uh, so it was August 31st, 1999, or 1998, and that was the first time I got sober, August 31st, 1998. And I was 17 years old, and I had no idea where I was. Uh, I was completely out of my mind and I thought I had died. I was, I thought like, okay, I'm, this is hell for me. You know, like my behavior has sent me to hell. I've died. And this is where I get to wake up is in this weird dorm room with 20 other freaks. And I get to wake up here every day. And, uh, you know, so after a few months, things started to get right. And I did what I thought, you know, everybody was going to be proud of. And I started a meeting there. And I started an Alateen meeting there and we didn't do any of the steps and we didn't do anything out of the book. And I was the only one there that knew anything about AA, but there were a couple other potheads and uh, that's what we did every day for an hour a day. And finally, uh, I got the opportunity to leave. And uh, so my parents, my dad, the day he dropped me off, I looked him in the eyes and I promised when I got out, I'd kill him and I meant it. And, uh, and he knew I meant it. So they moved, and they didn't tell me they moved. <laughs> they didn't tell me where. They didn't tell me when, because they were terrified of me. And uh, so finally, after a year of being in this institution, they weren't as scared. And they told me that they had moved to Florida with my girlfriend and, uh, and that it was time for me to come home and that they would really like me to join them down there. 
And so I got the opportunity to leave and I did. I jumped on a plane and uh, I went down there and I stayed dry for a while, you know, and, and uh, I loved Florida. It was warm because Montana was not. And uh, I got, I, oh, man, I remember the first cheeseburger at Denny's of all places, which now I would, you know, be an elitist cook and think that a Denny's cheeseburger was terrible. But after eating the food I ate there for a year, that first cheeseburger from Denny's was like having a miracle in my hands. I'd never been so grateful in my life. And, uh, but I was in a situation where I'd been in an institution for a year. I had no idea how to talk to people. I had no idea how to be a person. And, uh, I had a ready-made relationship and an apartment. And like all of a sudden I was an adult. I was 18 years old. I was living with my girlfriend on an apartment on the beach in Boca Raton, Florida. And I didn't know how to be a human. So I did what I knew best how to do. I went to work. And the only thing I knew how to do was sell dope. <laughs> so I got a job in a telemarketing phone room. <laughs> and I sold fake vacations and cocaine. And... Uh, <laughs> in in uh, Oakland Park in Fort Lauderdale. And that was... That was what I did, and, and uh, I made a lot of money. I made a lot of money doing it, and so it was like I immediately got back into doing dirt. And but somehow I managed to stay dry through it. You know, somehow I managed to stay dry through it. I still had this huge resentment against Alcoholics Anonymous because it was how I was parented. Every time I came into a problem, or every time I had to talk to my dad about something, it was always this too shall pass. You know, why don't you go help somebody? You should be grateful for that. And and I'm sorry, a 15 year old kid does not want to hear that. <laughs> you know, what I wanted to hear was, it's going to be okay. We can fix that. You know, but I didn't know how to explain that. And uh, my explaining is that I'm going to go smoke more dope just to piss you off. <laughs> so. I managed to keep things together for a minute and then her and I couldn't figure out how to get along because, you know, we hadn't seen each other in a year and we were these two different people and she was an alcoholic and I was dry and a drug addict and an alcoholic and she was still drinking and I was resentful. And uh, so we had this very abusive nine-month relationship and it finally ended with her hitting me with a chair and stealing my dog and I got her an airplane ticket to Las Vegas to go back to live with her parents. And so now I lived alone. I lived alone in Boca Raton, Florida. I didn't have any friends because I didn't know how to make them. You know, I had never made relationships that didn't involve me getting drugs or getting booze. I had no relationships that involved me getting what I needed. Um, so I didn't know how to have those. And, uh, and I wasn't doing that stuff. So I just kept doing dirt. And finally, I had a, a, my buddy Anthony that I worked with and sold cocaine with moved in with me because that was a really good idea. And then I met a woman one morning naked on my couch. And I thought it was God's will for me. Because when you walk out of your bedroom and there's a woman on your couch naked and you didn't see her there the night before, something angelic happened. That was a miracle. And she started finishing my sentences and I took the day off of work and we moved in together two days later. Because <laughs> I'm brilliant. <laughs> um... And so, and then, and then my life got really interesting, really fast. She was a call girl. My my roommate was driving call girls. I had started driving call girls and selling cocaine. And then it went to running an escort service and selling cocaine and running girls. And I was doing all this dry. I hadn't gotten loaded yet. And I was completely out of my mind. And, uh, and the next thing I know we had to escape. 
We, we had to escape because one of her calls had been murdered with her in the room. And it was either by my roommate or my best friend at the time. And so as soon as the homicide detectives had left my driveway one night at midnight, we loaded up in my truck and we moved to Oregon in the middle of the night. And uh, that was my life dry. That was my life without Alcoholics Anonymous. Was trying to figure out how to dodge a murder rap because they thought it was me. Because my truck was there and my girlfriend was there and so was my roommate. And uh, yeah. That was my life without Alcoholics Anonymous. Those are the things that I do dry. I still make the decisions of an alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, so we did that. We moved to Oregon. And then uh, we, we moved to northern Pennsylvania for a couple of weeks first. And then we finally made it to Oregon. And we stayed there for a couple of months and realized that we couldn't make any money there. And uh, at least not the kind of money we were making. And because at 20 years old, the kind of money we were making... You can't make selling shoes at the Bon Marche. So we decided we were going to move back. So we kidnapped my best friend from high school and drove all the way back to Florida. <laughs> and uh, she got pregnant, moved back in with the guy she was dating before me, told me she was pregnant. And this was on Christmas Eve. And, uh, and that she was moving to New Jersey with him and that the baby was probably mine. I finally drank that day. That was the day I drank. And then uh, I hadn't really turned on the jets until nine months later when the paternity test came back and the baby was mine. And then I really turned it up, you know, and that's, that's when I started drinking alcoholically. And I spent two and a half years in a blackout. Um, you know, so from 22 to almost 25, I spent in, in a complete blackout, um, 24, and uh, I drank every day. Until I woke up, like from the moment I woke up until wherever I passed out. And uh, I ran through a string of really awful relationships. A cop's wife moved in with me at one point while I was in a blackout. I stayed with her for three and a half years, and I don't know why she stuck around. Because you know? when I'm drinking, I'm a liar, a cheat, and a thief. I'll steal your wallet and help you look for it. Um, I'll steal your wife and smile on your face. And... Uh, you know, I will do horrible things to get what I want and get what I need. Nobody in my life matters. When I'm drinking, I'm a complete sociopath. Um, and so that's how I continued to live until I was absolutely suicidal. Um, I'd been fired from the shop I broke in at. Uh, tattooing's a huge part of my story. Tattooing got me sober. And uh, I've been fired from that shop for the third time. And I was working construction cleanup. I was pressure washing buildings and, and mansions after the construction crews finished and uh, working at this illegal tattoo shop and working at this restaurant. So I'm working three crap jobs. I'm drinking around the clock. And uh, in a blackout, I disappeared for two days and woke up in my bathtub with an empty fifth of Captain Morgan in one hand and a knife in the other. And I had cut half of this wrist. And I had this appointment to get tattooed by my best friend that day. And uh, that was April 20th, 2005. That was the last day I drank. Um, and he had a few years sober at the time. He had seven years sober at the time. And, uh, you know, he knew that I was dry before. And we had a long history. We were friends for a long time. And we sat there and we talked all day while I shook and sweat. And we took breaks so that I could throw up. Um, because I had just been in the, I had been in the hospital the week before for alcoholic pancreatitis, uh, died in the emergency room. Uh, that was the second time 
I had died from alcoholic pancreatitis. Uh, I shouldn't be here for all intents and purposes. Alcohol killed me twice. Um, you know, it, I, I spent weeks throwing up blood, shitting myself. I couldn't get into a detox. And uh, we, were, we were trying to find a bed, but I didn't have any money. I didn't have any insurance, so I couldn't get into treatment. I couldn't get into a detox. And in Florida, it's, a, it's, a real, it's just as tricky as it is here. You know, they got two state facilities. And if they don't have a bed, you wait on a list forever. And uh, so I just sweated out on my couch. And by day eight, I was, the shakes were finally gone enough for me to go back to work. He had, uh, the crew at the shop had offered me my job back. If I could not drink, I could have my job back. And they checked in on me every day, twice a day. Jason checked in on me at noon on his way to work. And Dave, the owner, checked in on me on his way home from work. And they had just made, they took care of me. They dropped off food because by now the, the girl had moved out. And, uh, you know, I was alone getting sober on this couch and I was dying inside and I was dying in real life. And uh, so they got me sober. You know, they, they spun me dry, they took care of me, and they gave me my job back, and they gave me my life back. And uh, I'm eternally grateful for both of them. And uh, unfortunately, neither one of them are sober today. You know, my mentor, the guy who taught me how to tattoo, is shooting dope in New York. And uh, the guy that got us both sober and, and brought us both in blew his brains out a few years ago. You know, and that's, that's what happens when we relapse, you know. Because um, alcoholics with any amount of time who can't come back eventually end it. Yeah, that's what we do. And uh, none of us get out messy, but we are the only kind of people that are asked if we could get sober or die an alcoholic death. We'll ask what kind of death. You know. Um, so I got tricked into doing the steps. <laughs> you know, uh, I was in this tattoo shop and now I'm dry again. And I know that I can't stand being dry and I won't stay sober very long when I'm dry. And um, I hate my life. And, but it's, it's better than drinking. You know, I'm still angry and all of us are sober, but dry. None of us, there's five of us alcoholics together in a room that aren't going to meetings. Nobody's got a sponsor, just varying amount of times. Everybody wants to kill each other. We had fistfights break out in the middle of the shop between staff members. It was great. <laughs> and, uh. So finally, um, my mom had given, while I was drinking before they, they were living in Florida, they moved to Mexico so they could stop watching me drink and, uh, and retire. There's two reasons. We moved back to Mexico to retire, but they had to get out of there to stop watching me drink. And, uh, but my mom, before they left, she left me Chuck Chamberlain's a new pair of glasses and I kept it on my toilet and I don't know why it stayed there, but I like reading when I'm going to the bathroom and, uh, <laughs> So I'm reading Chuck Chamberlain's new pair of glasses, dry as hell, and there's this bit about untreated alcoholism uh, that happens to be on the page I'm on. And I call my mom and I was like, I've got it. The five of us all have untreated alcoholism. <laughs> Brilliant. This is epiphany. And uh, my mom laughs at me and she goes, yeah, sweetie, you do. <laughs> so I went to a meeting. And I get to this meeting super early, and it's the lunch bunch in Boca Raton, and I get to this meeting really early, and uh, I walk in the door, and I had this really long LeBray spike sticking out of my lip, and like, 
this old redneck behind that's uh, secretary of the meeting at the time looks up at me and he goes, hey, how's that thing work when you kiss boys? <laughs> so I grabbed a chair and went for him. <laughs> and that's how I met my first sponsor, Glenn. Because <laughs> he stopped me from hitting that gentleman with a chair. And <laughs> he grabbed a chair from me, brought me outside, and was like, you know, I know your parents, and you really don't want to be known around here as the guy that hit the secretary with a chair in the meeting. And I said, why not? <laughs> and he said, just because you're not going to stay around here very long if that's how you behave. He said, if you really want to get even with this guy, you'll show up every day just to piss him off. And, and he knew how to get me going. Like, Glenn, man, he spotted me coming from a mile away. You know, he just knew what kind of person I was. And uh, and he kept telling me stuff like that. He's like, you know, you really want to know what will get underneath this dude's skin. Why don't you start making the coffee so you have to get here before him? <laughs> <laughs> so he tricked me into doing service. You know, and then and then I was there every day, and then I had to talk to the guy every day, and then and then all of a sudden he goes, you know, what'll really get under this under this dude's skin? Start coming to the business meetings, <laughs> you know. And so I started going to the business meeting, and then before I knew it, I was treasurer. They're like they were handing me the money. <laughs> they were like, I don't know if anybody here's been to South Florida, but Boca Raton is is very wealthy. So I was riding my bicycle to this meeting with like seven Bentleys in the parking lot. And they gave me the money. <laughs> and uh, and then they gave me the keys. And then that guy stopped going to that meeting. <laughs> and uh, it really had nothing to do with me. But, um, but it did get me sober. And then so, like, Glenn kept doing that. He kept tricking me into doing stuff. And, and I really love that, man, because he kept tricking me into doing the steps and being of service. And then finally, before I knew it, I had three years sober. I had five sponsees and every commitment at this meeting. And, uh, you know, it was five days a week. It was my home group. And I just, I was loving life. I felt good. I felt good about myself. I was making really good money and I hadn't thought about any of it. And none of it was about me. Um, and it was great. And I had like, I found my higher power by going through Step 12, bringing other guys through the steps. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't until that moment when I started bringing other guys through the steps and started passing off some of those commitments and seeing the lights turn on in other alcoholics that I really got to understand what this thing was about and really got to be grateful for the adventure that Alcoholics Anonymous really is. Um, you know, so then I was in this relationship with this beautiful woman who I'm still with today. We've been together 12 years and uh, she actually gave me my year medallion. And was the first woman to ever say anything nice about me. She didn't know me very well at the time. <laughs> um, so we move on. And I have still have this problem with having relationships. I still don't know how to be involved in relationships. You know, my problem as an alcoholic was having my toes in a relationship and looking for the next one because I knew it was going to fail. The second they got to know me, they were out of it. You know, and that's how I felt about everything. That's how I felt about work relationships, friendships, romantic relationships. It's how I felt about everything. Um, and my sponsor, Glenn, didn't know how to have relationships either. You know, he was 55 years old. He was single. He was kind of a womanizer. And that wasn't what I wanted. I really wanted to keep this woman in my life. And so I met a man named Mike. And him and these couple other guys that they called the God Squad <laughs> talked about this thing. You know, they all talked about being in love with their wives, and one of them had been married 45 years, one of them had been married 50 years, and my sponsor, Mike, at the time, had been married 37 years. 
And I wanted to see how that was. Like, I, I really wanted to understand how they did that. And they talked about things like leaning into your relationships and being involved and experiencing other people. Um, and I wanted to learn how they did that. So Mike brought me through the steps and taught me how to do that using the steps. Taught me how to do that using the steps and how to be involved in my sponsee's lives and be involved in my sponsor's life and be involved in people's lives as a member of service and to be helpful. Um, and man, my whole world changed. I learned how to be a friend. I learned how to be a son. I learned how to be a husband. And I learned how to be a father now. Um, and so at three years sober, after doing that with Mike, my son got kidnapped uh, by his sister's dad. And it was the worst thing that ever happened to me in sobriety. And it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, because through that, I got custody of him. And I've had custody of him for eight years now. And uh, he's a bright, shiny, 14-year-old punk rock kid that is fucking amazing and drives me insane. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I, I've just been thinking about it a lot lately because we just found out that his sister's dad died uh, three weeks ago. He OD'd. And we knew it was coming, and we've been waiting for it for his mom for a while because she's still out there. You know, she still thinks that she can figure out how to make this thing work. And... Uh, I know in my heart of hearts that if she doesn't get this thing, if she doesn't eventually show up here, then, you know, we're going to wind up going to her funeral and it's not far off, you know, um, I've lost 15 people to this disease since Thanksgiving and it's kind of astronomical. You know, when I'm thinking about it, um, my nanny in Florida died two days after Thanksgiving. Um, a lot of the people, my, me and my buddy Trent, I've been watching the people we got sober with and like the East coast, people are dropping like flies. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just, it's sad. You know, it's really sad. This, this guy, Gary revolution at my home group, he was, I love alcoholics and honest because sometimes you get kooks in a room that, you know, you're, you're afraid of and, and they're scary and they're crazy. But sometimes that message that they have is so visceral. Gary was a guy that had, uh, he had been in, a, in an AIDS coma for a long time and he woke up and uh, he had gotten sober and um, in the seventies and then went to a coma and woke up and this guy had 30 years sober, spent 10 of it asleep and woke up crazy. And uh, he just would share the most insane stuff, but occasionally he would share like little gems about how he still stays sober, you know, like completely out of his mind dual diagnosis with AIDS and, and he's still sober. And, uh, this guy used to share, he would start every share crying about the amount of alcoholics that he'd watched die over 30 years. And he would keep a tally in a little notepad. And, uh, and not just people that he knew or, you know, just like people that had come in and out and people that he had heard of passing away. And when I moved out here eight years ago, he was at like 370. And, uh, and that's the reality of this disease. And that's the reality of this disease for me. You know, I know that I got another drink in me. I don't know that I can make it back. You know, and that's part of what keeps me here. You know, that is a huge part of what keeps me here and keeps me doing the steps. You know, I do my best to, to apply the steps in most of what I do. I'm still terrible at it. Um, I, I make much smaller messes than I used to. And I make amends much earlier than I used to. And I clean stuff up a lot sooner, you know, and that's the benefit of the steps. That's the benefit of, of having the tools of this program is that, you know, I still get to be human. 
You know, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't make me any better than anybody else. It brings me up to normal living standards. You know, it means that I get to do everything like everybody else out there in the world. You know, I'm not a guru. I don't get to be any better. I get to actually do the dishes, make my bed, and go to fucking work every day. You know, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous gives me. You know, the fact that I can't do that with Alcoholics Anonymous is really apparent to me. Um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.